Well, if you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, we are going to come back to a text that I started talking about last week that is more complicated than I first realized. As you progress through the book of Hebrews, we are in Hebrews chapter 11, and in Hebrews chapter 11, it's the great hall of faith where there's all of these examples of godly men who we are to emulate by our conduct. They went before us, they walked by faith, and because they were able to walk by faith, what the writer of Scripture is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what they did by faith, we can do by faith, whatever our circumstances, whatever our trials. And as we came into verses 8 through 10, the focus was on Abraham. And then if you have many English versions, the translation like I read is the New American Standard, you would see the same thing in the ESV, you would see this, I think, in the King James and the New King James. You get to verse 11 and there is a reference to Sarah. And as I introduced last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to it on the website. But when I came to verse 11, here's how it reads in my English version, the New American Standard. It says, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 12 then goes on, therefore there was born even of one man and him as good as dead, At that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And as I introduced this last week, and I mentioned to you when I was initially looking at this text, as I always do, and I'm going through and I'm taking notes and I'm writing out thoughts and questions to myself so I can accurately understand it, I immediately thought, well, we're up to our sixth example of faith. We just talked about Abraham, now we're going to talk about Sarah as an example of faith, because clearly the way this verse is translated, for example, in what I read you in the New American Standard, Sarah is the subject of the sentence. That's how it's written, that's how it's phrased. But as I told you and I introduced and I started to talk about, more study convinces me that actually the subject of verse 11 is not Sarah. Rather, the subject of verse 11 is still Abraham, such that what you have is an uninterrupted flow of thought. Verses 8 through 10 are talking about Abraham. Verse 12 is Abraham. Verse 11 is as well. And I had someone read from the NIV. I'll read it this morning because this is the other translation of this verse in English. It says, by faith, Abraham even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. As you can see by that English translation, Abraham is the subject of verse 11. So you have several English translations of good and scholarly men and women who have poured over things, and they say that Sarah is the subject of verse 11. But, As you see by this other translation, it's possible that this can be translated in such a way such that Abraham is the subject of verse 11. So what I want to do today, as I introduced that I was going to do, I want to walk through the study process and the ideas that lead me to conclude that the NIV translation of this verse is more accurate 
than the translation that I normally use, the New American Standard. Now, I didn't put this in my notes, but as I thought about it, I wanted to give a little bit of a backdrop. The New Testament, as most or all of you know, was written in Greek. The original language of the common people at that time was Greek. And so when the original manuscripts, all that means is the the original time, for example, the Apostle Paul wrote something down, or we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but the first time it was written down, and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, those were all written in Greek. Now, while we don't have the original manuscripts, as part of God's sovereign work in preserving Scripture over time, they were copied and they were copied and they were copied and they were copied, and there winds up, if you study this, which I did in seminary, they found copies of the New Testament all over the world. Different manuscripts here, different manuscripts here. And what you're able to do, the scholars who do it, is by looking at all these various manuscripts, you can find out with high, high accuracy, high likelihood of success, what the original Greek said. So in this case, this isn't a situation where we don't know what is here. We do know what the Greek says. This comes down to an interpretive decision that two schools of thought looking at the Greek text come to a different conclusion. So I'm going to walk you through this, even though I do it with a certain amount of trepidation because I realize this can be confusing and I don't want to confuse you. And ultimately, I'm going to tell you what I think this verse is in the Bible for and why it applies to us. But if you see something like this in your own study, I don't want you to suddenly think, well, wait a minute, something's going on here. What, why would this be? There's such a dramatic difference between Sarah being the subject and Abraham being the subject that I want to walk you through some of the steps that I've taken that causes me to come to this conclusion. So we're going to look at the text of this scripture more than I, I think I've ever done. I'm going to talk a little bit about how certain things are phrased in the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. The things that I'm telling you aren't because I can go and open up my Greek New Testament and analyze it. All. It's just I'm standing on the shoulders of scholars and commentators who have studied these things over the centuries. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more than I normally would about Greek, but I'm also going to walk you through some Old Testament biblical history of Sarah. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of time going through the Old Testament to look what it says about Sarah. Now, again, all of this controversy comes from the same text, written in Greek. What does it mean? So, again, I'm going to look at this a little more closely. I want to make one other qualification. I am going to be forced to talk about sexual reproduction in the course of this. Now, that might seem unusual, and it's not gratuitous, but because of the phrasing in Greek, I'm going to have to mention some things. And so I'm just qualifying that up front, that I'm going to have to mention some things about sexual reproduction. I comment only because I see the little kid here. I don't think it'll be anything too graphic or problematic. I just want to give you a heads up that that's going to occur so I don't cause any issues. So, now I've said all that, and I didn't look at my notes, so I've got to find out where I am in my notes. So give me just a second. Okay, now, as I said before, the translation that comes to us all stems from the same Greek text, which is fairly understandable. And if you knew Greek and you looked in the text, I would tell you that you do see Sarah, her name, listed in the text. No question, Sarah is referenced in the Greek. And it's also true that you will not find the name Abraham in verse 11. 
So if you were just kind of glancing at it, you might think, oh, that settles it. It's all about Sarah. But you've got to understand there can be implied subjects in Greek. In other words, by context and other things, the fact that the name is there doesn't mean that the translation couldn't reflect Abraham as the subject. Again, I'm not a scholar in this. I'm just telling you these things are true. It has to do with how the language is written. And so when we want to look at this text, one of the first things we need to look at is the immediate context of the verse, because that is a component that leads to the decision that I come to. Now, I'm going to actually cover three different aspects of the decision, but the first has to do with the immediate context. And I spent a lot of time last week reviewing my teaching on Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. I'm not even going to reread all of it this morning, but verse 8 starts out, By faith Abraham. Verse 9, By faith he lived. So this is talking about Abraham. He's dealing with that context, is laying out that this is about Abraham. And then if you look at verse 12, which I've already read, it's clear this is talking about Abraham. Therefore, there was born of one man. So it's possible that verse 11 is talking about Sarah, but understand it would be a digression. Again, this isn't determinative. This is just a factor. And as I told you, you don't see the word Abraham in the Greek text of verse 11. You also don't see it in the Greek text of verse 10 or verse 9. But it's implied by tying back to verse 8, and you see the chain. So if Abraham is the subject, it really is not a stretch, because he's the subject that's been moving forward. In verse 12, he is the subject. In fact, after a little digression in verses 13 through 16, Abraham is picked up again in verse 17. Abraham has dealt with more, apart from verse 11, dealt with more than any other person in this great hall of faith because of his centrality to the Jewish nation. He was their father. He was their founder. Everything traced back to Abraham. So if he shifts, the writer shifts to Sarah here, it would be interrupting a flow of thought that he's continuing in a larger section talking about Abraham. But there's another factor that weighs into this again this isn't determinative but it's the type of thing that if you're wondering and you're looking in the text and you're trying to figure these things out it's it's helpful to think about from a biblical perspective sarah in the old testament is not presented as an example of outstanding faith now be careful i am not bashing sarah i think very well we may get to heaven and she may be there But in terms of what the Bible says about Sarah, it's not a flattering account. In other words, if you take some individuals, their sins are noted, but also their faith is testified to. In fact, as we go through Sarah's life, we can't help but go through Abraham's life, and I'll point out a couple of those contrasts. But as I was thinking it through, it would be good for us to go back and see what the Bible says about Sarah. So hold your place in Hebrews 11 and go all the way back. To Genesis chapter 11. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to be reading every one of the verses that I reference for you, but everything I'm saying in my notes, I have a verse reference. I don't want you to take any of this because, well, Joe said it. I'm getting this from Scripture. This is what is in Scripture. So I'm going to give those verse references to you. You can write them down, but I'm also going to be summarizing chapters and larger segments, just so you know. Now, the first 
time Sarah is mentioned in Scripture, she still went by the name, probably I would assume it's pronounced Sarai, S-A-R-A-I. Now, I only refer to Sarah. God changed her name later, just like he changed Abram to Abraham. He changed Sarai to Sarah. But in chapter 11, verse 29, we see that Sarai was Abram's wife. That was the starting point. That's her claim to fame, so to speak. She was the wife of Abraham. And the text immediately points out in verse 30 that she was barren. She had no child. Sarah could not conceive. Her womb was closed. And I won't ask you to go there, but if you looked at Genesis 17, 17, you would find, Genesis 17, 17, that there was a 10-year age gap between Abraham and Sarah. About a 10-year age gap. So whatever age, if you ever see an age there for Abraham, take 10 years off of it. That's about what Sarah was at the same time. Now, when Abraham responded in obedience to God, we covered this in great detail in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. And the account that's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 is reflected in Genesis chapter 12. I will say this, and it is a positive, but there's no explanation given of it in Scripture. When Abraham went, Sarah followed. God didn't come to Sarah and tell her to move, but when Abraham went, she went with him. So where Abraham was going, Sarah was going. That is a positive. It's not portrayed the explanation or anything in the Scripture. It doesn't say that Sarah had faith, so she went. But I give her credit because she had to be looking at her husband a little funny, saying, okay, we're going and you don't know where? And you're packing up everything and we're going, what? But she did go. Then, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, in this account, we see that at the time that's being talked about, and this is what the account reflected in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham was 75, Sarah then, by deduction, would have been about 65. So they were already up in age by the time this occurred. Now, Why do I point that out? Because I'm guessing Sarah was the most beautiful 65-year-old woman anybody's ever seen. Because the Bible records that she was so beautiful that in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah conspired to lie to cover up the fact that they were husband and wife because Abraham thought, she's so beautiful, they're going to kill me and take her. Now, God stepped in and intervened to keep them from messing up more lives, but the fact remains... They both lied there. That's not going to go on either of their accounts as a great moment in life. But in Genesis 15, and go ahead and turn over there. As we, I told you, I'm having to go through chunks of material here. In Genesis 15, God makes it clear that he does have a plan for Sarah specifically. Now, God didn't come to Sarah in Genesis 15. God comes to Abraham. And God is promising Abraham very specific things. And he made clear that Abraham's wife was going to conceive. Abraham thought that somebody else was going to inherit all of his things. But God made it clear, no, you're going to have a child. Verse 6 is something very important. It's one of the most famous formulations of faith in all of the scripture says this about Abraham then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness 
There's no question Abraham had saving faith at that point. Did Abraham sin? Of course he did. He sinned multiple times of lying and other things. I only mention this, and again, it's not determinative, but these are the types of things you think about. The focus of faith in the Genesis account is not Sarah. It's Abraham. He's the one who it's specifically recorded that he believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was put on his account that way. So the Old Testament focus is consistently on Abraham. He was the one that God chose. Now, again, this isn't determinative of the whole issue, but it's the type of thing that goes into thinking. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, we see another significant account in the life of Sarah. And again, it's not a flattering account. Sarah didn't have children, which meant Abraham didn't have children. No doubt she would have been aware that Abraham had received the promise of God. But she took matters into her own hand and said, I'm going to get a child through my maidservant. So Hagar, it's a famous biblical story. She gives her maidservant Hagar to Abram to sleep with, and sure enough, he conceives and has a son named Ishmael. Now, what was interesting, Sarah immediately realized she was not happy about the whole thing. She wound up forcing Hagar to leave with Ishmael. She sent away Abram's son. And it makes it clear in the text, she treated Hagar very badly. This wasn't sending you off with parting gifts. She was no doubt, very angry. According to the end of verse 6 of Genesis 16, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. Abraham just kind of washed his hand. You take care of it. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she, meaning Hagar, fled from her presence. Again, this is not a flattering picture of Sarah. Now, in Genesis 17, according to the text, Abraham was 99 years old. And God reiterated to Abraham the promise that God was going to make his descendants a numerous people. And this is very important in Genesis chapter 17. Look at beginning at verse 15. God made it clear that Sarah was a part of that plan. Beginning at verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So it's important also to understand that even though the Old Testament doesn't necessarily portray Sarah as this giant of the faith, there's not a corresponding statement about Sarah that says, and Sarah believed God and it was reckoned to her as righteousness. The fact remains God chose to use her. God himself was going to bless her with a child. She is a part of the sovereign plan of God. Which is why I want to clarify, even though I say the scripture doesn't paint a flattering picture about her, it does make it clear she is a part of God's sovereign plan. Verse 17, Abraham was already a believer, but this doesn't fit in his category of a great moment. Because God himself told Abraham all these things, then Abraham, verse 17, fell on his face and laughed, And said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He doesn't see how it's possible that Sarah is the person of promise. Verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
So Abraham, in his mind, apparently had already reconciled, well, God fulfilled his promise. I've got a son, Ishmael. And God was saying, no, 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 no. Sarah is who I'm going to be using. Verse 19, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now, again, God goes on to say that Ishmael would have certain blessings as well. But the fact remains that God made it clear, no, Sarah is the one through whom the child of promise, Isaac, will be born. Now, chapter 18 of Genesis records another interaction between God and Abraham. At a place called the Oaks of Mamre, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, it appears that apparently there were perhaps two angels with the Lord, because Abraham saw three men. But basically, they came and they were with Abraham, so God's talking to Abraham. In verse 9, this account occurs. Then they said to him, God and his perhaps two angelic representatives said to Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he, Abraham, said there in the tent. Verse 10, he said, this being God, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now again, this is just reiterating what God had already told Abraham. And even though Abraham initially didn't believe, he laughed. God said, no, 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 this is what's happening. Look at Sarah's reaction. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing, so not only was she barren, but now physically she was beyond the ability to have a child. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, in this context, being Abraham, being old also. So Sarah didn't believe it all. In fact, it might have seemed like a cruel joke to her what she heard. Verse 13, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Verse 14, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. So she was laughing at God, then she lied about laughing to God. But I would have probably been scared too. Particularly when God says, No, but you did laugh. You want to talk about having your heart exposed. God himself says, I know better. So again, in this whole context, I'm not throwing rocks at Sarah. What I'm trying to say is that the original hearers of this, if they were looking at their biblical text, they would see that Abraham is a giant of faith, that he believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You don't see similar language in the Old Testament about Sarah. Now we next see Sarah in Genesis chapter 20. And I would say by this time, it looks like she was probably 89 years old. That's a deduction from the fact that Abraham was 99 in chapter 17, verse 24. But give or take a year on her age, she was still so beautiful that again, Abraham concocted his plan to lie and Sarah lied with him. She had to be the most beautiful 89-year-old girl in the world because the king saw her and says, okay, this will be my wife. God came to Abimelech and said, don't touch her or else. And it's in Genesis 21 that we finally see the fulfillment of the promise that Sarah finally conceived and had Isaac. 
And she was overjoyed. She was thrilled. She was excited. Verse 6, the way she phrased it. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Verse 7, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse child, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, at this point, Hagar got on Sarah's nerves again. She was not happy with how Hagar and her son were reacting, how she perceived it. And she forced Abraham to send her away. Now, in fairness, God at least gave justification for that. God didn't say send Hagar away, but God did say, it's okay, Abraham, to listen to what Sarah wants here. You can do what Sarah says, and you can send her away. So again, that's not a a glowing portrayal. It might be a very natural thing, but it's not a glowing example of faith to treat someone the way she treated Hagar when it was her fault in the first place that Hagar had slept with Abraham. And the end of Sarah's life is recorded in Genesis 23, 1 and 2. She was 127 years old when she died. Abraham was very sad and buried her. In fact, I mentioned before, seems like the only part of the promised land that Abraham actually had a title deed to was the burial spot that he got for Sarah. Abraham would have been 137, again, that 10-year gap. And Abraham lived another 38 years after Sarah died. He had a really long life. Now, all of this, is a lot of historical information. What I'm trying to show you is that when you look at the Old Testament itself, it may be that Sarah had faith. It may be that we will see Sarah in heaven. There's no question that God used Sarah to produce a people through Abraham. But the biblical text doesn't paint a picture of a great warrior of the faith in Sarah. So the first thing we looked at was the context. It's an uninterrupted flow of thought of Abraham that would be thrown off by verse 11 if Sarah's the subject. Again, that's not determinative, though. The context, I think, would favor Abraham of the surrounding verses. I think historically it would be unusual to see this affirmation of Sarah because the Old Testament doesn't paint her as a picture of faith, although she may very well have had faith. I'm just saying it's not in the text like it is with Abraham. Now we're going to look at the actual words of verse 11. And no matter what Bible version you have, this discussion will be germane because all the English versions, even when they take different conclusions here, are dealing with the same text in Greek as already mentioned. And I think this looking into the Greek is going to be the factor combined with the context discussion and combined with the historical discussion of how Sarah is portrayed in Scripture that convinces me that Abraham is truly the subject of verse 11. Now, the starting point of this verse is by faith. That's a single word translated in Greek, but it's the same thing over and over. You see, by faith, by faith, by faith. And every translation, whether they take Abraham to be the subject or whether they take Sarah to be the subject, has some formulation along the lines of translating the words Sarah herself, because That is a reference that's in the text. So there's no question verse 11 has a reference to Sarah. But the words that are really the crux to the issue are translated in my version as Sarah received ability to conceive. Received ability to conceive. Now the ESV, if you have that, translates it this way. Received power to conceive, talking about Sarah. The New King James and the King James 
translate this as received strength to conceive seed. So this key phrase is translated in these versions that take Sarah to be the subject of saying that Sarah received the ability to conceive. She received power to conceive. And they're translating a simple Greek phrase. Now, I could almost read it to you. I couldn't guarantee that I could say it correctly. But the phrase is dunamin es katabalein spermatos. If you could see it written out, it's very simple. Dunamin is the word, the power, the ability. And the power or the ability that somebody in verse 11 has is reflected by that phraseology that I read and I won't try and read again. But here's the problem for those translations that take Sarah to be the subject of verse 11. And this is, to me, the critical issue. That phrase that I just read you, dunamin, ace, catabolane, spermatos, is an idiom very well established in Greek. In other words, you can look historically at that time, at the type of Greek that was used, that was an idiom that reflected a very specific meaning. In fact, if Sarah is the subject of verse 11, it would be unprecedented use of that phrase. Because it was a common phrase in use at that time. And a fairly literal translation of this phrase would be the power for the depositing of semen or seed. You could recognize even in English that word spermatos. Stated another way, it could rephrase that this is the power to lay down seed. This was a fixed idiom referring to the male part of the reproductive process. In other words, there's nowhere in any Greek writing from all the scholars that I read and that have dug into this, there's nowhere where this phrase was used to talk about women because it's talking about the male part of the reproductive act. So if Sarah is the subject of verse 11, as the translation that I use and the translation many of you use, it would be saying that Sarah received the power to perform the part of the reproductive process that a man does. To me, that argument is the most persuasive for saying that's not accurate. The writer of Hebrews writing in Greek, his Greek was very good according to the scholars. So he would be taking a phrase that everybody that would hear it would immediately know that's talking about a man and apply it to Sarah. If Sarah is the subject of verse 11. But if Abraham is the subject of verse 11, continuing the flow of thought from verses 8 through 10, and he's going to be the subject of verse 12, then this is very logical sense. Because what it is saying is that Abraham received the power from God when his body was already worn out to produce what was necessary from the male side of the process to produce a child. Unlike Jesus, Isaac wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit. Abraham's body, that was beyond the ability to produce what was necessary, I'm trying not to be too graphic, from a male physical sense, God gave his body the ability to do that. So let me hopefully pull all this together, and I pray that I haven't confused things. I'll explain what I think is going on here, and I'll explain why the text is mentioning Sarah. I'll explain what I think this means with all of this information brought to bear. I think just as 
Abraham is the understood subject of verses 9 and 10 from the context, even though his name is not there. Abraham is the understood subject of verse 11. And that's a perfectly appropriate translation of the Greek. In other words, that's why the NIV does that. They've made this interpretive decision. And so I'm going to read the NIV translation to you again because I think this is an accurate reflection of what the author was intending. By faith, Abraham. He puts the word in. It's not in the text, but that happens often in Greek. It's just the understood subject. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Here's what this verse is going for. This is our takeaway. This is what all of this means. Abraham had faith in the promises of God. Such that even though his body was not capable of doing what male bodies are supposed to do to produce a child, and even though Sarah herself was barren, In other words, the focus on Sarah here is just pointing out how amazing God's fulfillment of his word was. Abraham's body is past the point. He had to be given power from God to be able to lay down seed, as it were, to for a baby to exist. And Sarah herself was barren. Don't forget that. That's the history lesson that the writer inserts here. By the way, don't forget. You know, Abraham was old and his body needed God's power, but Sarah was barren also. Don't forget your biblical history. That's the tie-in. That's the reference to Sarah. I believe that's what the author is intending. And so when you see the phrase at the end of verse 11, in my version, that says, since she considered him faithful who had promised, I think the accurate understanding is that it's talking about Abraham's faith. He considered God faithful who had promised to him. So when we read those accounts of God coming to Abraham in Genesis 15, I think Genesis 17 or 18, Genesis 20, all of this is taking that biblical history and saying Abraham's body was spent. Sarah's body was barren. Don't forget that. Sarah was barren herself. She she couldn't do anything. And yet God gave Abraham the ability to produce a natural child this way. God promised Abraham that he would have a son by Sarah, and God fulfilled that even though by any human standard it was impossible. That's the point of verse 11. That's the ultimate example of faith that we're supposed to take away. The message is straightforward. God is faithful. God promised Abraham something that from a human perspective could not occur. God supernaturally intervened in Abraham's old worn-out body and gave him the ability... To produce seed, and even though Sarah, his wife, was barren, God used that union to produce a nation. Abraham believed that what God promised was true. The point for us is we can believe what God promised. If all the other stuff I said confused you, here's the point. We can trust God. We can have the faith that says, you know what, if God promised it, I absolutely believe it. God promised that he would never leave me nor forsake me. Even though my life seems like I'm drowning and there's not a lifeline anywhere, I believe the promise of God, even though it seems to me impossible. That's the type of takeaway we should have from this verse. With that context, in that context, verse 12 makes a lot of sense. Therefore, there was born of even one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
All this is saying is that God fulfilled his word. I could give you a lot of references. There's reference from Isaiah, other texts. I'm out of time, so I can't do it. But God is basically saying through the writer of Hebrews that because Abraham had faith, he could believe that God could do the impossible, and God did do the impossible. God took a man whose body was dead, couldn't do what was necessary for reproduction, and God gave him the ability to reproduce, and he used Sarah, who herself was barren, to do it. We can trust God because he fulfills his word. All of that in capital letters in verse 12 is a summation of some various Old Testament texts. But it all summarizes the key truth. What we are supposed to know is that if God has said it in his word, if God has promised it, it is true. Is our salvation secure? Absolutely, it's true. Can we trust God? Absolutely, it's true. Does God care for his children and we are his children? Absolutely, it's true. No matter what you endure, no matter what you see, no matter your circumstances, no matter how many times Satan is whispering in your ear, it's hopeless. Trust God. Believe. Even if your situation is impossible, even if your circumstances look impossible, understand that God is faithful. That's the entire point of this text. Abraham is our example. He could believe God. We can believe God if we're his children. And that's the point. If you don't get anything else, understand this. God is faithful. He will keep his word. We can trust him. Let me close with a quick prayer. Lord, I pray that you would work in spite of my limitations. I pray that you would create in each one of us a heart that trusts you. That we would have faith like Abraham to believe your promises. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.